good Thursday morning. All right. So did we mention that you need to silence your cell phone? Now, if I hear it go off, I might have to confiscate it. All right. If you don't know how to turn it off or, or vibrate it, then just turn the thing off if you don't mind. Um, in any case, thank you for being here. I know some of us just joined us, and we do want to welcome you here once again. We just have one more day after today, but we have a double blessing. Usually we just have one meeting, a camp meeting, one morning meeting, but we have an afternoon meeting because we thought that having Dr. Deal here would have a lot more interest in, in attending this because there's so much information that God has blessed him with that we need to hear, but not just to hear but to put the, the hand on the other side of the ear, on one of the ears, so that it will just stop somewhere in the brain and help us put it into practice. Okay. Um, I just have three of these. I had a bunch when I came here, but this is the handout for the training or train-the-trainer sessions that we're having in August at a couple locations. If you're interested to learn how to do some of these types of meetings in churches, uh, in your churches, uh, please see me in the back there. Also, I want to mention that we have a whole table of Dr. Deal's books that he's authored or co-authored. One is Take Charge of Your Health. One is Health Power. I believe this is the one that sold two and a half million copies around the world in 30 different languages. Health Power, Healthy by Choice, Not by Chance. It's got the little chip um, logo there. And then the cookbook, The Optimal Diet. And at the ACBC, they're at discount prices. So if you're at all interested in these books, now is the time to get them. So without any further ado, I'd like to invite Dr. Deal to come forward. Oh, okay, yes. The, the book that's already sold out is, some of you already are aware, How Not to Die. Uh, but Dr. Deal says, try to find it any way you can because it's worth it. You can go on to different avenues, as you know, Amazon.com or wherever. Um, How Not to Die. Those went very quickly. They cost a little bit more, but they were discounted here, but it's worth the price, okay? Your health is worth the price of the book, all right? Okay, so I think we're ready to pray, Dr. Deal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for our friend here, your friend, Dr. Deal, being with us, and we know that uh, your spirit's with him, your spirit is with us, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So we pray for that today in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. It's good to be back with you here today. I talked to my wife last night and she said, did you talk about overweight already? I said, I did. I said, did you tell them the story? I said, no, I didn't. I said, you're not around, so I'm missing out on all the good reminders. And she said, tell them the story. A concert pianist in the halls of symphony halls. And then something happened in his life. He became depressed. He began to eat. He began to eat, began to eat, began to eat more and more and more and became a binge eater. And he gained weight until he was 360 pounds. And his piano career as a concert pianist came to an abrupt end because he could no longer get close enough to the keyboard. And then he came to a program 
So I'm coming to a meeting. My wife is with me there, and this gentleman is there. And we become acquainted. And he says, I'm a concert pianist. And, of course, my wife immediately was very interested in getting to know this person because that is her, um, that is her career. And um, he said, you know, I couldn't get to the piano keyboard anymore until I came to this program here two years ago. Since then, I have lost 120 pounds. And I'm ready to restart my career. Last year, my wife and this gentleman teamed up as a plant-powered piano duo in Lithuania that used to be part of Russia at one time. Fabulous concert. He became again functional because the weight was interfering with his life's profession. And weight is not just interfering with those kind of aspects, but it begins to interfere with all of our areas, including the spiritual functioning of our frontal lobe that we talked about yesterday. Now, this morning, we want to talk about diabetes, but before I do, I want to bring to the stage, especially that I met the other day, and I said, why don't you share with, with all of us here what you shared with me? Shall I hold the mic? Will you time her two and a half minutes? <laughs> I told him I only needed three. Um, okay, my name is Dawn, and I'm from Greenville, Tennessee, <coughs> but this is our home when it comes to camp meeting. I have a brother who um, is 60 years old now. He was 60 in January. Um, we are fifth-generation Adventists. My brother's been a vegetarian for years and years and years. When he was 58, he just started feeling really tired, um, just down he didn't have any energy couldn't do anything and, and it just started gradual so he didn't know if maybe it was his age you know because none of us have gotten older till we get older so he didn't know if maybe it was just his age or if something was wrong so he went to the doctor they did a colonoscopy everything was fine they checked him for prostate cancer everything was fine in 10 months he lost 40 pounds now he wasn't over overweight but he was somewhat overweight like most of us are um and after the 10 months, he lost 40 pounds, and he went to the doctor, and they drew an A1C along with a lot of other blood work, and his A1C was 15.3. And they wanted him to lay down in the doctor's office, and he said, well, okay, but why? And they said, well, don't you feel bad? And he said, yes, that's why I came. And they, of course, was afraid he was going to have a stroke or something. To make a long story short, um, they wanted to put him on insulin, and he refused to go on insulin. So they put him on metformin and, and Farsiga. And he told him, he's, the doctor, he said, I'm not going to stay on this stuff. And the doctor said to him, he said, Mr. Thompson, he said, you've got two choices. He said, you can go home and totally change your lifestyle, or you can go home and put your affairs in order because you are going to die. So three months later, well, John went home, and um, he started researching. They didn't give him any kind of a diet, they, no diet whatsoever, just gave him medicine. So he went home, and he started researching everything he could find out about diabetes. And his wife had a friend who had just come back from Weimar. She had an insulin pump when she went to Weimar. She came back on one metformin. So she shared a lot of what she had learned out there. And the biggest thing he took from that was to eat a half a cup to a cup of beans before every meal. So he quit with all processed food. He didn't put anything processed in his mouth. Um, he cut out all sugar. Um, <laughs> course that was desserts with it and 
He was not really a sugarholic before that, but he did have a sweet tooth, and he would eat a lot of fruit, a lot of fruit juices. He told me this morning that it was not uncommon for him on a Sabbath and a Sunday to have a half a gallon of fruit juice without sugar added both days. So that was a gallon in 48 hours. Anyway, when he went back in three months after making this total radical change, he went back in three months for his check, and the doctor told him, he said, Mr. Thompson, I didn't expect to see you here today, so I, I figured you'd be dead. And John said, no, sir. He said, but I did have to make a decision not to die. He said, it wasn't a decision to live. I had to make a decision not to die. Because a lot of people live with their toes gone. They live with their legs amputated. They live with blindness. They live on dialysis. You know, he said, I had to make the decision not to die. In three months when he went back, his A1C was 6.8. In January, he turned 60, and he went back, and his, uh, for his nine-month check, his, hemo I mean his A1C was 6.1, and he's totally off of all medicine. Was that two and a half minutes? <laughs> so we're talking today about diabetes. You got the story, right? I mean, you can actually turn diabetes around. This man, in months, was no longer on these high uh, levels of uh, of uh, high blood sugar levels. You heard the A1C was 16. He was going into a coma. And then just a few months later, he sees his physician, and it's almost normal again. So I want to give you an alert this morning. I want to reinforce what this lady just said. It's estimated that in America, every second American adult is either at risk for diabetes or already has diabetes. Now, there are about 350, 400 people here. That means 200 of you people, if you're average American people, 200 of you either have the risk for diabetes or you already have developed the disease. That's a scary situation. I'll give you some stats here. 1994, uh, about 5% of the adults in America had type 2 diabetes. Three years later, it was 6%. Three years later, it was 7%. Three years later, it was 8%. Three years later, it was 9%. Now it's 12% of the American adults have diabetes. Two thousand nine, 10%. And does that remind you of some of the stats we showed you earlier about obesity? how obesity starting in 1980, about 1985, increased every five years by 3% of the population more and more and more. And we now understand that diabetes follows obesity. Usually 10 years later, you have the result coming to you. So this is really a very powerful relationship in that it helps us to understand that there is a direct relationship between our diet, our overweight, and our diabetes. We showed you those chairs before. We didn't see much change in the size of the American population until about the 1980s. And then we began to realize that when a person is really obese, like this concertizing pianist, who incidentally became a vegetarian, lost his weight, and he and his wife, as I mentioned to you, they now uh, do concerts, four hands, four hands concerts, a piano concert, and they call themselves the plant, the powerful plant piano duo. 
because they're both vegetarians. Okay, so when you have um, a, a very significant amount of obesity, you have to be concerned that diabetes may be seven times more commonly found in those kind of people. <coughs> Take a look. Here you see um, um, from 1945 to today, the uh, diabetes has increased by 900%. That's nine times more diabetes since World War II. And just in the last 20 years, we have seen the diabetic population grow from 6.9 million people to up to 20 million people. Now today we have about 21 million people in America that are diabetics. And then you have to add another about 30% who don't even know that they have diabetes. So we have about 30 million diabetics and about 30% don't even know they have it. Why don't they know it? Because they didn't have a physical exam and nobody took their blood sugars. So <coughs> diabetes then has inexorably advanced, doubling every 15 years in our society. As a matter of fact, the chance of becoming a diabetic in the United States for a newborn baby in a lifetime is now one out of three. Every third baby born in this country will become in a lifetime a diabetic. If you are Hispanic parents, then the likelihood is one out of two. Every second baby will be born, uh, will be, that is born, will become a diabetic in a lifetime. Why Hispanics? Why it's so, half, so, so, so serious and so frequent there? Because these people come from a country where they didn't have any of these kind of things that we have here in terms of those luxury foods, those junk foods, those refined foods. And when they come here, all of a sudden, oh, they think they've come to paradise. I mean, just think about it. They got the Oreos, they got the M&Ms, uh, they have the, 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 the everything that they never had really much of in their country. All of a sudden, it's here available. Uh, they tell me that, they said, well, we were lucky to find some ketchup on our shelves back in the village where we used to live. We come to America, and there are 19 different brands of ketchup now available. And so you see, they're being flooded with these kind of foods, and they are not quite yet aware that there are dangers attached to this kind of a food supply. So <coughs> in America, every second adult has diabetes or is at risk for diabetes. So we have about 116 million people that have diabetes or they're at risk. Now, if I would ask you, um, how does a person know that they may have Diabetes. What are some of the symptoms? Yeah, you see, you're a very knowledgeable group. You know all these things because you know how to read, don't you? So what, are you, what is it? You are thirsty. And when you're thirsty, you're drinking more. Because you're drinking more, you have to go to the bathroom often. So you have now frequent urination. Then you're always hungry as a diabetic. You're hungry. That's one of the, one of the symptoms of, of diabetes, constant hunger. And if you're on medication, you're even more hungry because the medications, almost all of these medications cause an enhanced appetite. So you want to eat more because of the medication side effects. So that, you, that means that you have to get more medication and more medication, and you gain more weight, and you have to have more medication, and you die. The answer is not to be on these medications. The answer is to turn the disease off by turning off our habits that cause these problems, particularly the overweight. So then, you, of course, you have to worry about blurred eyesight. Uh, as people are uh, uh, eating more food, they become more overweight, they feel more tired. It's all part of 
the whole concept of diabetes. And then you have the tingling in the hands and feet. And then for the men, one of the first signs that diabetes is developing is erectile dysfunction, impotence. As a matter of fact, <coughs> erectile dysfunction is oftentimes the canary in the coal mine. Do you know what that means? If you don't know, talk to the person that says yes, and they'll tell you later on. It is the canary in the coal mine. Let me just tell you what it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, these miners that would go underground, um, in, the in the early days, they didn't quite know if there were some poisonous gases developing or evolving, and they would take a small bird, a canary, with them down into the shaft, down underground. And when that little canary bird began to fall over, they knew there were some gases there, poisonous gases, and they really beat their way up to the top of uh, the surface to get the oxygen again. So this is then a warning sign. Di impotence or um, erectile dysfunction, especially when it occurs when you're 45, 50 years of age. Folks, this is oftentimes the canary in the coal mine. Be sure you get your blood sugars checked because you can turn it off. And you can reverse all kinds of things. So it's worth it. <coughs> so when if you, if, you, if you want to be sure that you have diabetes, then you want to check your blood sugar. And anything that's above 100 is either pre-diabetes that goes up to 125, or you're becoming a full-grown diabetic once the blood sugar is above 125. So if I ask you, what, how do you define a diabetic technically? What is the number? 100 and? 25 is a diabetic. If you are normal, it's under 100. If you're between 100, which is normal, and you are between diabetes, which is 125, you are pre-diabetic. Of course, then you have also what we call the uh, hemoglobin A1C. This is another system that we're using nowadays, and anything above 6.5 is a full-blown diabetic. And the person, uh, the brother of this lady that just talked, he had and uh, A1C of how much was it? 15. That person was huge. This person was heading for a coma. He was indeed in trouble, big trouble. And as we have discussed uh, this uh, uh, risk arch for atherosclerosis and heart disease, we also pointed out that aside from the big three ones, which, which is cholesterol, high blood pressure, you see, you remember it so well. You're doing such a good job here. Um, and then you have now diabetes coming in. And with diabetes, of course, you also have obesity. Then diabetes becomes one of the drivers of atherosclerosis, which means narrowing of the arteries. And not just the coronary arteries, but all of the arteries. And here you see what happens. The arteries begin to clog up gradually, step by step by step, progressively, and it affects all the arteries. So if it affects the arteries to the brain, then you have memory loss. Of course, that also becomes more frequent as we get older. But diabetes enhances. It makes it worse to have memory slips. It also makes it worse to have a heart attack a stroke, uh, that's an infarct of the brain. It also increases dramatically the likelihood as a diabetic to develop heart disease because diabetes pushes, 
promotes, facilitates the narrowing of the arteries. It's an accelerator of atherosclerosis. If you remember nothing else, I want you to remember that one aspect when it comes to diabetes. Diabetes causes an acceleration of atherosclerosis. It speeds up the process of closing, narrowing arteries all over the body. And so you have heart disease very common among the diabetics. And of course, then you have, we talked about erectile dysfunctions. These penile arteries in men, they're just about one-tenth the thickness of the coronary arteries, so they can get very easily narrowed down and they stiffen up. And so that's why things don't quite work very well, because you can no longer uh, sustain the continuous blood flow through these narrowed vessels. And of course, you have to be concerned about kidney disease. And these are all the diseases that you find in the diabetic. Diabetes is the mother of all chronic diseases. Diabetes takes your body apart one organ at a time, from the brain all the way down to the feet, ending up with amputations of the toes, of your legs. I mean, it's a devastating disease. And you can take all the medications you want, you can take all the insulin you want, it does not stop the complications that are ensuing. As a matter of fact, if you have a, a diet, uh, a, a prescription program, uh, a medication program that is trying very intensely to control the blood sugars, it might actually worsen the likelihood of these complications. So here you see it then. The higher the blood sugar, the higher the risk for blindness, affecting the eyes, the vessels in the back of the eye. Kidney disease, affecting the vessels to the kidney. Heart disease and stroke is two to four times more common in diabetics. Impotence, we talked about, oftentimes the first sign of atherosclerosis, foot and leg amputations, and then hearing impairment. These are all aspects, complications of diabetes because diabetes accelerates atherosclerosis, narrowing and hardening of the arteries. And so uh, we know that probably up to 80% of the diabetics die from atherosclerosis-related diseases. Therefore, we must control these risk factors such as cholesterol, no smoking, high blood pressure. We need to do something about extra weight. We have to do something about triglycerides. We have to get into an exercise program. Now, if all these kind of things I just mentioned to you are not bad enough yet for you, let me tell you also that you're also giving up not only the quality of life that's taken over by these complications, these diseases, but you're also basically giving up 12 to 15 years of life. It shortens your lifespan. Even if you have the best medication approach, it does not curtail the loss of life unless you really change what you put at the end of your fork and spoon. Now for the good news. Are you ready for some good news? Okay, there it is. 50 to 75% of these type 2 diabetics that are taking insulin, and 80 to 70% of these on pills could normalize their blood sugars and be off medication within weeks 
All they have to do is change their diet, just like the brother of this lady that talked to you earlier today. He changed his, his, his food supply, he got into an excess program, and the diabetes was basically almost gone. These are some of the best researchers in the country, like Professor James Anderson. He has written over 500 scientific articles about diabetes in medical journals, has written many, many books and many chapters in books, and he said 50 to 75% of these diabetics on insulin could be off insulin in weeks. And then he said 80 to 90% that are taking the pills could be off these pills in weeks, and they would have normal blood sugars. And then people come to me and they say, Oh, so you can really take care of diabetes. After this, you can eat anything you want to eat. <laughs> but that's not the point. You will always be, in a sense, a diabetic, just like you will always be obese if you eat too many calories. Isn't that right? You cannot just lose weight and say, no, I'm cured, no, I can do anything I want to eat. No, it's always there because you're feeding it. You're feeding the obesity, you're feeding the diabetes, you're feeding the hypertension, you're feeding the angina, you're feeding the heart disease. This is a program for life. <coughs> Let me just spend a few moments on, on insulin, <coughs> what that really is. Insulin is a biochemical messenger. It's sort of like a key that you insert into the lock of a door, and the door magically opens up. You have about, we estimate, some 10 to 100 trillion cells. And every cell has kind of a lock. And the lock has to be opened up so that the blood sugar can get out of the blood into the cell because that's the energy that the cell needs. So when you have <coughs> insulin in your system and it works very, very well, then it opens up every one of these trillions of cells and the blood sugar, the sugar in the blood, the good sugar, gets into the cells because that is the gasoline that drives the car. That goes into the tank. <coughs> now, that's how it's supposed to work. So you can see there, you have a pancreas, which is a major organ uh, in the mid-area here. And the pancreas produces insulin. And the insulin comes to every one of these cells and it, it's like a key, it opens it up, and then the doors of the cells begin to open up, and the glucose, the blood sugar, the sugar gets inside of the cell, and the cell works very well and says, thank you, I can work now, I can function, uh, you're doing fine. <coughs> now, you have now a type one diabetic, it's a different kind of diabetic. Usually, uh, we thought of diabetics when they are babies, when they're very young, and the pancreas, for some reason, is not working, is not producing any insulin, what happens now? There's no key. There's no one to open the door of these cell gates. And so as a result, the glucose is building up on the outside of the cell. It goes above 100, 125, 300, 500, 600, 1,000, and the person dies. If it wasn't for the ability of injecting insulin from the outside of the body so that the insulin can get into the body and can open up these gates. 
other cells. Let's take one diabetes. It's very fully rare, rel relatively speaking. And 90% of all the diabetics are the kind that I want to dis describe to you now. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Okay? So let's take a look at this one here. This is now a type 2 diabetic. That's, uh, we used to call them adult diabetics. <coughs> because we, in the early days, we always thought that these are the, uh, this is a disease that happens when a person is 50, 60 years of age and they're large then you're at risk for diabetes. Well, that's the way it used to be. <laughs> now we have to look for potential diabetics when people are 50 years of age and large, 40 years and large, 30 years and large, 20 years and large, 15 years and large. Now we call them adult onset diabetics or type 2 diabetics, common diabetics directly related to what aspect? Size. Overweight. Now, what you see here is, you see there's a person there. Is that person slender or small? Let's take a look at the uh, type 1 diabetic. Is that person slender, slender or, or large? <laughs> slender, okay? These are type 1 diabetics. They're slender usually. Something is wrong. They don't produce insulin. Something is wrong with the pancreas, and they need to have insulin injections. And if they follow a very simple diet, particularly a vegetarian diet, and they keep uh, the fats and also the, the cholesterol down, the animal products, they can live a fairly normal life as type 1 diabetics. Then you have the type 2 diabetic. What do you see? Is that person large or slender? Large. Does that person have insulin? Insulin are these little triangles. Does, it have, does the person have insulin? Lots of it. This is not a deficiency of insulin like you have with a type 1 diabetic. This is a person that has lots of insulin. The body is trying to pour as much insulin out as it can because the body recognizes that somehow the insulin, the, the, the key, doesn't unlock these gates very effectively. It opens a few, but not all of them. And so the body now begins to reason, if I produce more keys, if I produce more insulin, maybe it can open up all these gates here, and then the person is no longer diabetic. But it doesn't work that way. Because it's not just the insulin, it's the fact that the locks are gummed up. Somebody put some chewing gum in, into the lock. So you can get the key in, right? Or maybe the locks are rusting. So you put the key in. It doesn't quite work. It works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't work. And that's what you have when you have type 2 diabetes. What's really causing the gumming up of the locks, however, is not the chewing gum. It's not the rusting. I just use that to help you understand the concept. But it's the amount of fat on your body and the amount of fat inside of the cells. When you're overweight, when you're eating too much fat, oil, and grease, it gets into the cell, and that causes a reaction from the inside that does no longer allow the insulin to become sensitive to what needs to be done to open these gates. We have about 5% of all the diabetics are juvenile onset diabetes. These are young people usually. They don't have... Uh, the insulin, they don't have the pancreas that's working. But please note, 90% of the diabetics are the um, people I just described to you. Then you have a few more that develop diabetes during pregnancy, but that usually uh, resolves itself 
after the uh, delivery. So we have now about 21 diagnosed diabetics. Eight, nine million don't even know they have it, so we have 30 million diabetics. But those who have been diagnosed, most of them are taking what? Insulin or pills? What's the highest percentage? Please wake him up. He needs to know this. Is he okay? Would you please give that to me? No, 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 that's okay. We have to ask the pastor here to come and confiscate these kind of little gadgets here. It's all right, it's all right. Just, we're all good friends here, aren't we? But I really, I really want all of you to really pay close attention because this is a matter of life and death. Okay? So about 65, 62% of the people are these pills, and then many of these people are on insulin. Some of them are on insulin and pills, and some people are sort of on some kind of a diet, and it doesn't really work. Because drugs don't cure. Drugs don't stop the epidemic, and they may actually be harmful. Many of these drugs, they come and they go. There's a big fanfare. You see it on television. We have a new drug coming up now for managing diabetes. And after about two or three years, when they begin to realize the complications and the people that have died from, the, from, from these medications as side effects, the drug just dies. And the doctor never prescribes it again. And then a new drug comes up. And they're all, most, most of the time, they're fairly similar. They're just a little bit different. And big fanfare. We sell millions and millions of these drugs, and then the results come in, and we begin to realize there are complications, there are side effects, there are oftentimes deadly side effects, and then the drug dies again, and a new one comes in. Folks, isn't it time that we really get to the root of the problem? Isn't it time that we really think about what can I do? You cannot rely on these medications in most cases. We've shown you this picture before. This, how, this is how we treat diabetes. We've got to take care of the leaky pipes instead of keeping always working hard to keep the floor dry. That's what we try to do with medications and all these procedures. We try to keep the floor dry, and it doesn't really work. It pays very well. The mopping up pays well, but folks, it doesn't help the patient. So let's talk a little bit about what we perhaps could do. We know from large population studies around the world that diabetes is fairly rare in populations that are living on a basic, traditional, plant-based diet. I'll give you an example. I take you to Japan. I try to give you some uh, data here from Japan. After World War II, it was very difficult to find heart disease in Japan. After World War II, it was very difficult to find diabetes in Japan. It was difficult to find overweight in Japan, right? 1960, here's some of the data. Before 1960, you would find maybe 1% of the middle-aged adults to be diabetics. So this is now looking at people that are over 40 years of age. And you look at all the Japanese over 40 years of age, and you find maybe 1% of these people is a diabetic. And then you look 40 years later in 1980, 20 years later actually, well, 40 years later, 2000, when you look at all the diabetics in Japan then, and you all of a sudden realize it's now 15% and more of all the people over 40s of age have become diabetic. 
What happened in Japan? Did, some, did something change there? Did it change the, 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 the genetics? Folks, the genes, they are not responsible for diabetes. If a person has a genetic predisposition towards diabetes, it runs in your family. It's sort of a predisposition. But if you don't activate it with the diet, you don't have to worry about it. This idea, well, it runs in my family, therefore I will have it too. No. You know, genetics is sort of like a gun. <laughs> but you've got to pull the trigger, but the diet gets you to do it. So we also now begin to understand, we call this the concept of epigenetics. Um, we begin to understand more and more now that these genes that could place you at a higher risk for prostate cancer or any kind of cancer or at higher risk for diabetes. There are many, many switches on all of these genes that you can turn them off. You can turn them off. You can turn them off with diet. You can turn them off, we believe, also with exercise. This is all now an evolving science. Maybe being a nicer person and turning your iPhones off. All of, <laughs> all of these things, they can turn this... They can turn the switches off that otherwise could promote a genetically related disease. This is the best news that we've ever had. You see, epigenetics, uh, which overrides the genetics, the, uh, the inherited uh, traits. Um, epigenetics is sort of something like you have a horse. It's a wild horse. It gallops. It does whatever he wants to do. But then you become the jockey. And you have the reins, and you tell the horse where to go, how fast to go. That's what you do with the diet that controls the genes. Otherwise, you wouldn't have free will. A very important concept. What happened in Japan? Here again, you see in Japan, we, we talked to you about 1960 to 2000. Uh, in Japan, the fat consumption increased it tripled over the years from, from 1960 to 2000. Japan began to eat more fat, oil, and grease, and largely coming from animal products because they discovered the Kobe steaks. That's a high-fat food, isn't it? That's about 70 80% fat. At the same time, as they began to eat more fats, what happened to the carbohydrates, the rice? It went down. They reduced the consumption of grains, like rice, by one-third, and they replaced it with fats. And with that, you also see the emergence of overweight and diabetes. The red line is uh, the emergence of, uh, of overweight. You see it from 1960. It crept up from 3% up to 15, 16% over the next 40 years of the population. And then at the same time, you see the yellow line, and then you see obesity, overweight, is now creeping up just in parallel motion with the uh, overweight. Now, we talked about this. I want to talk to you about four shifts in the diet. Shift number one, we move towards processed food, empty calories. Remember? Shift number two, um, 
we went from uh, uh, some animal products to excessive amounts of animal products. You see here, we went from 124 pounds per person per year to 200 plus pounds per person a year. At the same time, I think we talked about this, we also changed our diet composition. As people no longer ate uh, potatoes and corn and beans, we began to change that diet and we now began to eat potato chips, high in fat. We began to eat corn chips, high in fat. We began to settle more for animal products, high in fat and high in protein. So we increased the protein consumption in America dramatically, very quite a bit, and at the same time, we significantly increased the fat intake. Down here in Mexico, maybe it was about 10%. In our society today, it's more like 35%. So we have dramatically increased fat consumption and, uh, uh, and the protein consumption at the expense of the healthy starches. These are the healthy starches. These are the starches that come in nature to us. We have reduced them more and more and more. And whatever starch we eat now, nowadays is largely white flour refined starch. Whenever you have this kind of a diet, what did we say? Within 10 to 15 years, you will always find Western diseases. That's what happened in China. China used to live pretty much like this 30, 40 years ago. They changed, especially the urban centers. And today, you have this diet composition. And today, you have the heart disease. You have the cancers. You have the diabetes. You have the overweight in Japanese population because this is the diet that we are now globally pushing and where you have about 50% of the calories that we eat comes from processed food and about 35% comes from animal products and only 14% comes out of the hands of the master designer. So what can we do to turn this thing around? Well, I can take you to Loma Linda and you have seen this slide before. Uh, Adventists that are meat eaters have four times more diabetes than Adventists that are vegans. So if you want to lower your rate of diabetes, what would be a good color to choose there on the board that you see there? You move towards a, a color green, which is leaving out animal products. What are animal products? Give me some ideas. Cheese. Oh, yeah. Eggs. Milk, meats, fish, yeah. chicken, yeah, these are all meats, these are all animal products. So I want to talk to you briefly just for a few moments about uh, what is causing diabetes. What do most people think causes diabetes? Sugar. Would you be open to another explanation? Okay. Now, we have, we have talked to people for decades about cutting back on sugar. We teach them all the details. If you have jam, make sure it has no sugar. If you have your soda pop, make sure it has no sugar. We have taught people over and over again, no sugar, no sugar, no sugar, because we know that as diabetes develops and progresses towards a certain stage, then you're actually excreting sugar in the urine, and that's why we thought, aha, these people don't know how to take care of the sugar. We better take it out because otherwise they're urinating the sugar away. This is how they used to discover diabetes. In the old days, when the pharaohs were examined by their physicians, in those days, physicians were the priests. 
the priest would go and see the pharaoh, and they would say, sir, I need to have a, a, a small amount of urine. Would you please give me some urine? They took the urine, they poured it on the sand, on the ground, and if the ants would come to the urine on the sand, they knew the pharaoh was a diabetic. And it's only the rich people in, in, in Egypt that would have the ants coming to the urine to attack it because other people didn't have any sugar in the urine. So it has something to do with overweight, with excesses. And so we have this idea that because sugar is being excreted through the urine, through the kidney, that maybe that's what the problem is. I have some news for you. I want to develop it very carefully so you understand it. Can you really, uh, can you really create diabetes? Yes. I've already told you, didn't I, that I can take medical students, I take lean medical students, and I give them a diet of one pound of sugar a day. I mean, they get some other foods too, but I add an extra one pound of sugar, anything that is sweet and that they love to have, and the kids think they've gone to heaven. And then I say, well, let's see what happens to your blood sugar after 11 weeks. Not one person has become a diabetic. The experiment is over. Didn't work. Then I take these same students, and this time I give them hash browns and salami and cheese and cream and ice cream and margarine and butter. I give them all these fatty, fatty foods. When, when, when we give them, uh, if they want to have some coffee, we give them cream with coffee, not coffee with cream. You follow me? When, we, when, they, when they have their, their butter on their, on their bread, we tell them, put it at least a quarter inch thick on it. Enjoy it. Okay? When you have whipped cream, put all the whipped cream on that you want. And the kids, again, think they have gone to heaven. But the experiment is over after two weeks. And they're all distressed and sad because it's over. Because seven out of ten of these lean medical students now, within two weeks, were test diabetic. There's a study, 1927 done. This doctor created mild transient diabetes in medical students within two weeks by giving them this kind of a high-fat diet. You know, the American diet is about 35% fat. They gave them 65% fat. I mean, just pour it on, baby. <laughs> and in two weeks, the power of fat, oil, and grease. <clears throat> 1935, a famous physician by the name of Sir Harold Hemsworth in England found that the more fat he had in the diet for his patients, the more the blood sugar would go up. The, lower, the, much he, the more he lowered the, the, the fat in the diet, the lower the blood sugars would take place. <clears throat> then I can take you now to Colorado to an experiment. They had 134 pre-diabetics. What's a pre-diabetic? Their blood sugar is between what numbers? Very good. We're becoming good friends. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> so now you have 134 pre-diabetics, <clears throat> um, and they follow them for three years. And then they want to know uh, how many of these 134 pre-diabetics, pre-diabetics are obviously large, overweight, because that's why they're pre-diabetics. Out of these 134 pre-diabetics, <coughs> those people that became diabetics were the ones that took the most fat into their diet. 
So those patients, those people as pre-diabetics that had the highest intake of fat were the ones that turned into full-blown diabetics over the next three years. Here's study number four from Harvard. This is a huge study. This is some 85,000 uh, pre-diabetics. These are nurses. They're enrolled. Uh, this study has been going for many, many, many years. They followed them for 16 years. And out of these 85,000, uh, 3,300 became full-blown diabetics. And then they said, well, what did they have in common? Those people that became diabetics, what characterized them versus those who did not become full-blown diabetics? And the difference was it was the lifestyle. It was the amount of fat on their bodies. The people had a 40 times higher risk for becoming diabetics, 40 times more likely becoming a diabetic if they had extra weight. So weight is a very important factor. Now, here's study number five. This is one of the most important studies that has ever been done. <clears throat> I want you to really pay attention to this one here. And this is, they took 3,234 obese pre-diabetics. Pre-diabetics become what? Diabetics. Diabetics, okay. And here's, they have these obese pre-diabetics, and they wanted to know how many of these people become diabetics and how long will it take? <clears throat> here's what they found. They put these people for three years into a special study that was conducted in 27 university centers. Big study. Multi, multi, multi-million dollar study. Here's what they found out. Out of 100 obese pre-diabetics, out of 100, 29 developed diabetes within three years. So that's what we can say with comfort and with assurance that if a person is obese and an obese pre-diabetic, you have three years, you have a 30% chance of becoming a diabetic in three years. So if some of you are struggling with obesity, with extra weight, and you're pre-diabetic, I can tell you, you have a 30% chance that you would be a full-blown diabetic in three years. That's where, where the study comes from. Please, then, so 29 out of 100 people became diabetics. Then the other group that they had, they took metformin, which is the most commonly used medication today. And out of 100 people, only 21 became diabetics. What does that mean? Did the metformin work? Yes. Because if you don't take the medication, then 29 out of 100 people become diabetics. If you take the medication, only 21 people become diabetics. Now here's, here's, here's what I want you to really pay attention to. However, if you join <coughs> a lifestyle group, no medication, just some lifestyle change group here, and you walk 150 minutes a week, which is what, how many minutes a day? About 20, 25, let's say you walk for five days a week, that's 150 minutes a week divided by five, that's 30 minutes. You walk for 30 minutes a day, you got it? You're pre-diabetic, you're obese, but you walk for 30 minutes and in addition to this, we help you to lose 7% of your weight. So you lose a few pounds and then you do this for a whole year and after one year, <coughs> only 14 out of 100 people are now diabetics. Do you see, making some lifestyle changes is much more successful than taking the medication. And folks, 
to me, that is so ridiculous. I mean, if you're pre-diabetic, you're obese, and you say, I want you to walk every day 30 minutes, and I want you to lose a few pounds. That's not what we do in the CHIP program. We say, we want you to really lose 10, 20 pounds. We want you to lose one pound a week. In one year, we want you to lose 50 pounds. This is just a small, humble, uh, mild uh, lifestyle intervention program. But even that was very successful in helping people, instead of 29 becoming diabetics, only now 14 become diabetics. What it, what it tells you is the power of, of taking care of yourself. Mic is off? No, it's on. So then you have the big study that Harvard that 200,000 people that they're following for 10 years, they're all physicians, and here's what they found. They found that the physicians in the study, 200,000 physicians, those who took two ounces of processed red meat had 50% more diabetes. Well, how does, how does meat contribute to diabetes? Yeah, it's high in fat, and it has no fiber. And that's the next story I want to tell you. So then they switch these people, these diabetics around, and they give them a high a grain diet, lots of fiber in the diet, and the diabetes decreased by 35%. So here's Dr. Anderson again. He said, we have some great news. We can reverse diabetes, but how do you do it? Let's just talk about this. You can do it by eating more carbohydrates, but the right kind. Don't eat refined carbohydrates. Refined carbohydrates are starchy, refined starchy foods. Refined carbohydrates are refined sugars. You can eat sugar if it's not refined, and it's okay, within reason, as long as you have enough fiber in your diet. I mean, don't drink fruit juices. That's, again, refined. But if you take it the way God designed it, you have the magic answer for taking care of most of the diabetes in this country. Now, if you don't have the um, starchy foods as they come in nature, then it lacks fiber, and the fiber does not, is not available to you to slow down the conversion of starch to sugar. You see, when you have white flour, that turns into sugar. You know that, right? I mean, that's what you have been, been taught all your life. But nobody told you that if it is unrefined starch, if it has fiber, it works just perfectly fine. We put our diabetics on a 70% carbohydrate diet. What do you think we feed them? Cakes and pies and pizzas? No. Unrefined grains, just the way the Lord made them. And we give them, we make sure we tell them, be sure you have Lots of beans every day. Have beans every day. And people come to me and say, well, sir, haven't you heard that beans are sort of antisocial? <laughs> In the TIP program, it doesn't make any difference because we're all doing it, so nobody knows the difference. <laughs> we'll open the doors. <laughs> but you know... <clears throat> One of the big reasons why you have this flatulence, this gas problem, is because 
we are not used to having fiber coming into our system. We just get about 10 grams in our American diet when you eat fiber and you eat the chip program and you have more uh, beans that have lots of fiber in it, it assaults the body and the body doesn't quite know what to do and so everybody knows you're on the right program. <laughs> it takes about three to four weeks and then things settle down. The volcanoes are no longer erupting. <laughs> Everything is calming down because the body now understands I got the right number of grams of fiber that I need to have. And so this is then the fourth shift. We talked about three shifts already. We shifted in our society to empty calories, refined food. Number two, we shifted to animal products, which are again, high in fat. Number three, we talked about we need to have uh, a diet that has low fat, low sugar, but l high complex carbohydrate foods. And then shift number four is we want you to take in more fiber in your diet. <coughs> Let me just go very quickly through these reversing uh, uh, research projects. Here is uh, a physician. This goes back to 1933. When this physician took the patients down on the fat intake, 24% uh, out of, that's 24 people out of 100 diabetics were off insulin in just a few weeks. Experiment number two, Dr. Singh here in, uh, in uh, the United States, uh, he tried to see if the original work that was done in 1933 would still work. And so what he did, he took 80 patients that were on insulin, they were diabetics on insulin, and he gave them a very, very low fat diet. The same fat amount that Dr. Asselson is giving his patients, Dr. Orn is giving his patients, 10% to reverse heart disease. So he gave them a very, very, this is 1955, a very, very low fat diet, foods as grown, whole foods, such as? Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, maybe a few nuts. Okay, so this is a very, very low fat diet, and within six weeks, 50 out of 80 diabetics on insulin are off insulin. <coughs> and the blood sugars are normal. At the end of 18 weeks, 85% of these diabetics on insulin are off the medications. 1983, Nathan Pritikin does the same thing. Again here, 74% of his diabetic patients on drugs, on medication, were able to leave the center in less than four weeks without any medications, and their diabetes was basically gone. Then you have Dr. Barnard, and you might want to take a, put, put this one down. It's an excellent book. Um, there are five books out there that talk about reversing diabetes. Um, that is a perfect gift for diabetics to uh, take a close look at. And Dr. Barnard showed that he could put people on a very simple diet, vegetarian, very low in fat, and within 26 days, 71% of his patients on medications were off this medications and their blood sugars were normal. CHIP program, <coughs> we had 525 diabetics there. You see it right there. Uh, they were not taking any medications, but they were diabetes in the diabetes range. After within three days, those 525 diabetics, we only had 301 left as diabetics. What do you think happened? So they come into the program, 525 are diabetics. After 30 days in the CHIP program, there are only 301 people diabetic. What happened to the other 224? They all died? <laughs> no, they were no longer diabetics. 
Hello, I'm Dr. Roger Greenlaw, and I would like to share with you a story from my practice. We'll be hearing about the health benefits of a high-fiber diet in a 76-year-old woman with multiple lifestyle-related diseases. It had started several years ago, maybe 25, 30 years ago. I began gaining weight. That's the first thing I noticed. And with that weight gain, I developed some high blood pressure. And soon the doctors were talking to me about high cholesterol. And um, not too long after that, I started to um, develop what I thought were cardiovascular symptoms. I was very, very tired. I couldn't walk very much of a distance before I had to sit down. I would be out of breath. Uh, very soon after that, I developed uh, symptoms of diabetes. After several years of that, I started to have even more complications that come with high blood pressure and diabetes. I started to have eye problems, what they call diabetic retinopathy. So I did uh, go to a nephrologist and he suggested that my kidney function tests indicated um, that I was going into kidney failure. In fact, I was at stage four, um, which sort of puts you right at the edge of needing uh, dialysis and or a kidney transplant. Finally, one Sunday, I lost vision in my right eye and at the same time had a problem with my right arm. There was some pain there and I couldn't use it very easily. So uh, then they ran more serious tests and finally did an angiogram. And at that time they found many, many seven or eight blood vessels that needed to be replaced and um, then went out to tell my husband and daughter they would have to do open heart surgery and take veins from my leg and replace those blocked blood vessels in my heart. And they did that in short order. In addition to what I saw as very serious health problems, I did start to develop some digestive problems along the way. And I took some over-the-counter type medications for that and it didn't seem to help much. So by the time that I made an appointment to see Dr. Greenlaw and talk about the colonoscopy, I also had many other digestive problems to discuss. Now I would like to tell you about the medications that Beverly was taking. She was on four different medications for high blood pressure. One of them causes potassium to be lost from the body, so she was also taking a potassium supplement. In addition, she was on a trial of Lipitor for cholesterol elevation. Let's focus for a moment on Beverly's diabetes. She was insulin dependent, not only taking long-acting insulin every day, but several times during the day, she required injections of regular insulin to control her blood sugars. And remember, she had complications of her diabetes. I had so many things that I really didn't know what to work on next to try to keep under control. I was so worried about myself that that's, and how I was feeling and what I was going to do if this thing progressed or if I couldn't get those kidneys under control or um, 
if, if the veins that they had replaced the arteries with in my heart uh, blocked again. So I really was in a hopeless situation. And I knew I had to make some firm decisions and life changes. In our discussions, it was obvious to Beverly, and it was obvious to me, that she had exhausted all the traditional medical interventions that could help with her diseases and complications. She was asking me, what could I do that would improve my situation? Now, we talked about lifestyle change, her nutrition, her exercise, what stresses were going on in her life. And could she make some changes that might begin to address her diseases, and she was interested. I recommended that she try the CHIP program, and she agreed. As Beverly and I talked about lifestyle change, therapeutic lifestyle change, we talked about her multiple diseases and how the CHIP program could address all of those. The idea that if you treat one problem with a lifestyle change, you begin to treat all problems simultaneously that are lifestyle related. And that seemed like a perfect idea for Beverly's situation. Now for the really fun part of this story. Beverly signed up to take the CHIP program in September and October of 2009. And I would like to share with you some of her laboratory data. In the beginning, her cholesterol was 263. And after the CHIP program, it was down to 170. When we looked out five months later, it was 202, and a year after that, 178. It is not unusual for people's numbers to improve with some ups and downs over time, and she has continued to improve. Notice her weight loss at the end of the CHIP program was 15 pounds, five months later, 25 pounds, and then in February, a year later, 40 pounds off, and in June, of 2012, 57 pounds off, and that's where she leveled out. Notice the dress size going from 18 to 16 to 14 and then 12, and now she's shopping in the size 8 to 10 rack. Then I noticed that I could eat a great deal uh, without taking more insulin. The other thing I noticed is I seem to be losing weight, eating more, but losing weight. And that gave me some encouragement. I think probably just in the first weeks, you know, I lost 10 pounds or more. As I became more involved with the program, um, I, I noticed that I could get the uh, blood sugar levels under control. That, that was a big thing for me. And um, I was feeling a lot better. The big story here is that she's off insulin and controlling her diabetes with metformin and lifestyle change alone. And let's not forget that Beverly was suffering from severe complications of her diabetes. With the taking of the CHIP program, the laser treatments stopped, and over the next two or three years, not one laser treatment was necessary. Her ophthalmologist was stunned at that result because that is so seldom seen in traditional medicine. 
then the neuropathy. That, that was a problem. In the auditorium where we had our CHIP program, there were steps. And every time we went to our seats or, or got up to get water or have a break, uh, we would uh, use those steps. And I needed help a lot of the times because I couldn't feel the steps, the steps themselves in my feet, with my feet. If I couldn't see them, I wouldn't know they were there. And so someone noticed and gave me some help when I needed to um, get up out of my seat. And now it's so different because even if I change socks and I have heavier socks on or lighter socks, I can feel the fibers in the socks. And it was something I couldn't feel before. Just recently, um, the doctor checked my feet as, with the little wire where to see how your um, neuropathy is, if it's progressing, and he could find no evidence of it at all. Neuropathy is something most people would say is not able to be improved by medical therapy. You would use pain medicine to control the discomfort, but you would not expect neuropathy to go away. And in Beverly's case, her neuropathy steadily improved till it is now no longer an issue in her life. Incidentally, her heartburn improved within two weeks of starting the CHIP program. I would have been happy before I started CHIP if any of the diseases that I've talked about would have been helped, even to any degree. That's how desperate I was. And now I see that not only the diseases were, some of them reversed, all of them improved, that's for sure, but um, it changed me as a person. I see myself sort of as CEO and president and chairman of the board of all the decisions that are made for my body and do everything I can to make the right decisions day by day. I, I talked to Debbie the other day. She's 85 years now. She has one medication. That's all she takes. She had seven bypasses before. She had all these problems. Once you take care of one problem, chronic disease problem, you have a very good chance that all the chronic diseases will become affected by it. And of course, what she did, she said, I adopted a new kind of a cow. <laughs> I want to introduce to you the cow that Beverly adopted. That's a safe cow. Foods as grown. This is the Harvard plan for diabetes and heart disease and managing and reversing these chronic diseases. They recommend, if you can take a look at it, the green, this is now the, the, the plate that they recommend. It should have lots of greens, lots of vegetables. It should have fruits, fresh fruits. It should have whole grains. It should have healthy protein. They don't recommend meat. They said, well, if you want to have some meat, it's okay with us, but make it healthy protein, such as beans and lentils. If you want to have some meat, it's fine with us, but it's better to have more of the others. And then, of course, do you see? 
There is no milk anymore in the Harvard diet plan. There's no more cheese in the Harvard diet plan. There are no more eggs in the Harvard diet plan. This is the School of Medicine and the School of Public Health that is recommending water to drink instead of milk. And people say, but sir, what about my osteoporosis? Countries that consume the most milk, drink the most kind of dairy products, no cheese, have the highest rates of osteoporosis. The idea that we can protect our bones by drinking more milk as being advertised by the milk industry, the science is not there. This is then the final slide. A whole food, plant-strong diet offers the single most powerful and most effective remedy to prevent and reverse type 2 diabetes. And it brings us to where we started a few days ago. God provided us with a very special prescription of how our diet should perhaps be constructed. And here you see, by divine intervention, a simple diet consisting of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, some nuts and seeds, and plenty of water. You use it, and you reverse heart disease. You use it, you reverse high blood pressure. You do it, you reverse heart disease. You do it, you help yourself in terms of overweight. You can eat more and you lose weight. God knew what he was doing when he created the food supply for us. When it comes to diabetes, the good news is 50 to 75% of the diabetics on insulin and 80 to 90% of those on pills can normalize their high blood sugar levels within weeks if they follow a program that God can endorse and provide it for us. Thank you.